Well, good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. Do you have a Bible tonight? We're going to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 12th division of 1 Corinthians is where we'll spend all of our time tonight as we work our way through this wonderful section of text. And while you're opening your Bible and getting settled, we welcome all of you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. If you are visiting with this church family as I am this week, we especially welcome you. Thank you for being here. There are, are several in that category tonight, folks that I've known a long time and that I've appreciated for a long time. <clears throat> we appreciate all of you being here and for the encouragement that you, uh, that you give us by being here tonight. You know, isn't it just nice, as we've come out of COVID in the last couple of years, isn't it just nice that we can be together, that we can just be together, we can have gospel meetings and gatherings like this and not have to worry about things like we, like we once did. I was thinking about that when, uh, <clears throat> when we were in the heart of, heart of COVID. Uh, I was home for 20 months uninterrupted. And that was the longest uninterrupted period of time I've been home in 45 years of marriage. So I was home for 20 months. I was okay with that. My wife, Vicki, not so much. Uh, by the end of COVID, Vicki was calling churches all over the country, begging them to start having meetings again. So here we are tonight, as you all, you all answered the call. It is so good to be with you and glad we can study together. Appreciate very much. We had a wonderful crowd this morning for our morning, for our morning session. We hope you can be with us tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Tomorrow, as we're talking about profiles in good works, tomorrow morning we're going to talk about, about Paul and Philemon and Anisimus, that little tiny book of Philemon that is so wonderful, often overlooked, seldom studied, and yet... A wonderful little narrative that talks about good works on the part of Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. All three of them, as they each did things that they didn't particularly want to do, but they did because it was right. I can't wait to talk with you about that tomorrow morning. So good to be with you tonight. I'm glad that we can study together for just a couple of minutes tonight. I want to begin tonight by asking you a question. If I may, it's a very simple question, but I'd like for you to think about it and answer it, if you will. Here's the question. What do you want on your tombstone? What do you want on your tombstone? Now, I'm not talking about the pizza. I mean your real, your real tombstone. What would you like inscribed on your tombstone? Tombstones are interesting to me because in just a few words, they seek to encapsulate a life. The favorite tombstone that I have ever heard of is in Nantucket, Massachusetts. It's a gentleman named Jonathan Pease. And here's what his tombstone says. Under the sod and under the trees lies the body of Jonathan Pease. Peas is not here, only the pod. Peas shelled out and went home to God. I like that. Again, <clears throat> what would you like to be the inscription for your life? When all said and done, I don't really know that we could have a better epitaph than that of David, of whom it was said in the book of Acts chapter 13 that David, when he had served God in his generation, left this world. But he served God in his generation. What a wonderful thing to think that when we die, God Almighty could survey the landscape of our lives and say, I'll tell you about him, I'll tell you about her. They served my purpose in their life. Now to do that, of course, we've got to understand what God's purpose for our life is. About 25 years ago, a gentleman, an evangelical author in America, sold 35 million copies of a book designed to help people understand the purpose of their existence, what drove their life as given them by God. I've got to tell you, I'm not sure that it's really all that complicated. 
In fact, the Bible says some very simple things like this. It says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and amen. I may not understand everything about that, but I do understand that it's saying that this life, when all is said and done, is not so much about us, it's about God. It is about bringing God glory. In fact, at the end of the Bible, in the Revelation, we have this. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. And so, from beginning to end, it is about bringing glory to God. If you want an example of that, the quintessential example of that would be Jesus Christ. When Jesus prayed, I have glorified you on the earth. How did he do that? Well, by finishing the work that you've given me to do. And so I would deduce from that that whenever, whenever a man or woman on this earth completes the work that God has given them to do, in that they are bringing God glory, and bringing God glory is ultimately what we are all about. And so why did God create us? Well, God created us for many reasons. He created us to serve and to and to care for others. And He created us to be conformed into the image of His Son. And that list can go on and on and on. But for our purposes tonight, I want us to think about the fact that God created us to live in community. He wants us to live in community one with another. And when we do that, in the way that God outlined, we bring Him glory. If I were to ask you tonight to describe the relationship that we have as children of God, how would you describe that? The Bible uses a variety of descriptors along that line. Who are we as God's children? Well, the Bible says things like this. We are sheep in a fold. We are branches in a vine. We are citizens in a kingdom. We are children in a family. We are soldiers in an army. I want to ask you tonight, what's the common denominator in all of those statements? What do they all have in common? Well, they all have in common that it's about a relationship. All of those testify that we live an interconnected kind of life. Whether you're a child in a family, a sheep in a fold, a citizen in a kingdom, a soldier in an army, you don't live independently and autonomously. You live an interconnected life. God made us that way. Even in the very beginning, in the perfect environment of Eden, what did God say? It is not good that man should be alone. God created human beings to live in community, fellowship, harmony, one with another. The innate longing of our heart, given us by God, is for family and for fellowship. Now the most telling analogy along that line, I think, is this. Read this with me out of Romans 12. As in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, compose one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. I want you to think about that. We are a body of Christ. We are a body of Christ and the individual members, I want you to notice how he describes them. We are members one of another. That is, there is a way in which we are connected one with another. Now understand what that means, ladies and gentlemen. It means that the church of our Lord is not a business, it is not a club, it is in fact a body. That's what Paul said in Colossians 1 and 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The church is His body. Think about that. That means that we are the living, continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ in this world. It does not say that we are like the body of Christ, that we resemble the body of Christ, that we are similar to the body of Christ. It says, 
We are the body of Christ. What do we sing sometimes? He has no hands, but our hands. And that's right. And so we are His hands, we are His feet, we are His eyes, we are His heart, and we are members one of another. I believe the implications of that are absolutely profound. And yet sometimes we take that profound concept, and if we're not careful, we apply to it a business or a club kind of definition. So let me ask you tonight, what does it take to be a member in good standing, let's say, of a club? For many years in Temple Terrace, I was a member of the Rotary Club. Well, what does it take to be a member in good standing of the Rotary Club, or virtually any other kind of club? Well, basically it takes three things. Number one, you've got to attend the meetings. You may not have to attend all of them, but you've got to attend some of the meetings. In the Rotary Club, if you miss two meetings in a row, you got a letter, and it asks you, do you still want to be a part of this organization? So you have to attend the meetings. Secondly, you have to obey the rules. That is, every organization has a system of bylaws. And when you become a part, you in essence say, I'm going to abide by the principles of this organization. And then third, you've got to pay your dues. In every club, you've got to pay your dues. It's essential. At the Rotary Club, they met you at the door, took your money right there, couldn't get in for the meeting unless you had made arrangement to pay your dues. And if you'll do those three things, if you'll attend the meetings, obey the rules, if you'll pay your dues, you can be a member in good standing. Now, somebody comes to you and says, is brother so-and-so a member in good standing? Is he a faithful member of the Southside Church of Christ or the Temple Terrace Church of Christ? How do we often decide how we're going to answer that? Well, often we ask ourselves three questions. Number one, we say, well, <clears throat> does, he, does he attend the meetings? Does he, does he come to worship? And then secondly, we'll ask and say, well, does he obey the rules? Now, we understand that nobody's perfect, but never known him really to commit any egregious crime against God. And so I can check that one off the list as well. And then third, does he give as he's been, as he's been prospered? And that's a tricky one because, you know, we really don't know what other individuals give along that line. But I would assume that he does. And so if we can check off those three boxes, typically we will say, yes, this individual is a faithful member of this local church. I want to challenge that just a little bit tonight, if I may. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that those things are not important. In fact, those things are critically important because they are commanded by God. And so don't misunderstand me about that at all. But what I am saying tonight is that there is more. There is more to membership than just that. Because in in a club, for example, the Rotary Club or the Qantas Club or whatever it may be, You can lose a member of that organization and never really even notice that they are gone. Why? Well, because you don't have any relationship with them. But you can't do that in a body. You cannot lose a member of your body without knowing that you have lost a member of your body. Uh, My kids, of course, are grown now. They are are fully grown. But never once, when my, my son Josh, for example, when my son Josh was in elementary school, never once did he come home from school and me look at him and say, well, Josh, son, where's your right arm? And him say, well, dad, I don't know. I had it this morning. I must have left it somewhere. That just doesn't happen, does it? You can't lose a member of your body without noticing. Because body members are so interconnected in the body of Christ that you should not be able to have one of them die or move away 
or leave the body or the head of the body without noticing that it is gone. That's the way the body of Christ is designed to function. Do you have your Bible tonight? Let's read about that in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, it find, this passage is, in the, is nestled in the heart of a four-chapter section that deals with some abuses of spiritual gifts. I realize there's a context here. I understand that. And really, in the context, it is about the abuse among Christians of spiritual gifts. But really, when you boil it down and extract the essence, what's going on is an abuse in attitude. And so really, it's asking the question, look, what are the attitudes necessary for there to be harmony among the people of God in these matters? For there to be health in the body of Christ about these matters. And so when you boil it down, this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 is really saying, look, how can you have a healthy, strong, harmonious body of Christ. Listen to what Paul says about that. Let's read together. Verse 12 beginning, 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 14. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, Is it therefore not a part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it therefore not a part of the body? But if the entire body were an eye, how then could it hear? If the entire body were an ear, how then could it smell? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members composing one body. So, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again the head to the feet, I don't need you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Why? Drop down to verse 25. That there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And then, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Here's what I'd like to do in the minutes that we have tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Just from this passage, what I'd like to ask very simply is this. What are the attitudes and actions necessary to create and maintain health and harmony in the body of Christ? What are the attitudes and actions necessary to create and maintain health and harmony in the body of Christ. I want to take three things directly out of this passage and then the lesson's yours. Here they are. Number one. Number one, we would emphasize, I think the passage says, dependence and not independence. Because one of the things that is said repeatedly in this passage is that no Christian can function effectively by his or her self. That's not the way a body functions. Think about it this way. This is... uh, this is my right hand. I'm, uh, I'm very attached to it. That's a terrible pun. I, should have, I just should not have said that. That's a bad pun. But I am attached to my right hand. I am right hand dominant. 
I do everything with my right hand. My dad was ambidextrous. I didn't get any of that. My dad could do everything equally well right and left-handed. It was amazing to me. I'm not that way. I do everything with my right hand. I feed myself. I ride. I shoot a basketball. I do everything with my right hand. But let's imagine through accident or amputation that my right hand becomes separated from my body. What will happen to it? You say, well, Don, it's going to, it's going to putrefy. It will die. And, it's, and it's, not going to, it's not going to take orders from the head anymore. It's not going to function anymore like, like it should. And that is exactly right. And in exactly the same way, ladies and gentlemen, membership is essential in the prevention of decay and death in the body of Christ. Every now and then somebody will say, I would imagine you've heard someone say, look, I really don't need a church. I really don't need the local church at all. All I need is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people who believe that. In fact, in 2022, the fastest growing segment of religious identification is this. I am spiritual, but not religious. What does that mean? Well, it means that I don't want the church. I don't need the church. All I need is to be a spiritual person with a relationship with Jesus Christ. But anytime somebody says that they don't need the body of Christ, the church of the Lord, anytime they say that, they are saying that they know more about spiritual health than the Apostle Paul. Because again, what did Paul say? Paul said the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again can the head ever say to the feet, I don't need you. Put that in the terms that we talked about a moment ago. A sheep separated from the flock or a child without a family. Both of those, ladies and gentlemen, are unnatural, and they are dangerous. And what I'm saying tonight is that we need to realize that rugged individualism, standing on our own, rugged individualism is an American virtue. It is not a Christian virtue. Over and over in this passage, what does Paul emphasize? That we are members one of another. It is in that, I think, that we are introduced to the beautiful concept of, of fellowship. Fellowship is one of the most wonderful words you'll find in your New Testament. It is, it is translated by about nine different words in our, in our English Bibles. Fellowship is sometimes translated by words like communion, where we have a common union with each other. Sometimes by the word partner or partaker or share. All of those words that imply that our lives, the root of the word fellowship has to do with being mixed together. That's something we have mixed ourselves together in a relationship in Jesus Christ. But fellowship, ladies and gentlemen, while we may talk about this tonight, fellowship is a challenging proposition. Why is that? Well, fellowship is challenging because fellowship demands patience toward others. Well, why is that? Well, because... While we are walking in the light as He is in the light, the fact of the matter is we don't all walk at the same pace and in the same place. There's some by reason of maturity who are ahead of us in our walk in Christ. And there's some by reason of immaturity spiritually, that is, they're brand new baby Christians, they may be miles behind us in our walk with Christ. And then there are some who are right beside us. And so we have to give each other some allowance because of that. And so fellowship demands some patience toward each other. And secondly, fellowship demands understanding others. Well, why? Well, because we're not clones of each other. And so our relationships are enhanced when we, when we can develop the traits, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, 
love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and godless, all those things that help us as we try to realize that we are, that we are different from each other. We'll talk about more, more, a bit more in, in just a minute. And then thirdly, fellowship demands being considerate of others. It demands, Galatians 5 and 26, that we are not boastful and challenging each other and envying one another. What does it mean? Well, it means that we understand that the Word, listen to the Word again, the Word is fellowship. It is not my ship. And it is not even your ship. It is that we are fellows together in the ship of Christ. Christians are dependent on the Lord and on each other. In fact, Jesus wrote to a church with an independent spirit in Revelation 3 who thought that they didn't need anyone or anything. And Jesus said, your problem is that you are walking in absolute blindness. You are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked because we are dependent on each other. And so, number one, Dependence, not independence. Secondly, we will emphasize to have health and harmony in the body of Christ. We've got to emphasize equality and not superiority. Here's what I mean by that. That no member in the body of Jesus Christ should ever feel superior to another member of the body of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul put that in Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. Listen to what he said. By the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. This morning when we talked about, in the morning session, about about James, the brother of Jesus, we made the observation that James became so productive, and it wasn't because he was assigned a task, it was that he forged a place and a role in the kingdom of God. And we said that if you want a faith that lasts, you, you've got to find a task. You've got to take personal ownership of a specific task in order to develop a robust faith. Why is that? Because James said that faith without works is dead. And when you think about all of that, listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. I want you to think with sober judgment about yourself. And remember, remember that whatever you have, Whatever ability and talent you have, whatever opportunity you have, it is God who has given you that. And so we don't have a right to feel superior to anyone. And don't misunderstand me about that either. That doesn't mean, ladies and gentlemen, that we don't have different roles in the kingdoms of God. Because we do, don't we? There are a variety of different roles. There are elders and deacons and preachers and Bible class teachers and song leaders and what did we talk about yesterday morning we talked we said that jesus talked about look if you'll just if you'll just give a cup of cold water just give a glass of cold water in my name you'll not lose your reward but while there are many job descriptions in the kingdom of god there's only ultimately one role and that is servant of the most high god several years ago i heard paul Earhart in a sermon in temple terrace talk about that And he said, you know, when you became a Christian, you received, you got the highest position you can have on earth in the kingdom of God. You became a servant of the Most High God. Now we serve in different ways, in different roles. There's no denying that. And that's the language we use, the vernacular that we use, isn't it? We say, he serves as an elder. 
She serves as a Bible class teacher. He serves as a deacon. He serves as our preacher. He serves as a song leader. She serves in another way. And so we use that. We understand that language. And we understand how important that is. Because it makes us so that if one member suffers, all the members will suffer with it. If one is honored, all the members will rejoice with it. And so as we serve in those roles, as we accomplish in the kingdom of God, everybody can rejoice because we all understand that, again, while we have many different roles and job descriptions, we're all servants of God trying to do what we can. But here's the challenge with that. The challenge with that is that we are not clones of each other. And in our local churches, though we are members one of another, The fact of the matter is that each individual member is a member with an identity unto themselves. If we want there to be no divisions in the body, it's imperative that we come to understand each other a little bit. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The fact is, again, we are not clones of each other. We are different from each other in a variety of ways. I I don't know a lot about the individual members of this church. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about the church that I'm a part of in Temple Terrace. In our congregation in Temple Terrace, we are, <clears throat> we are extraordinarily diverse. We are just an extraordinarily diverse congregation of people. Now, for example, while most of our members at Temple Terrace would be like me, I, I hold a passport of the United States of America. But we also have people in our, in our church who are members of our congregation who would hold a passport from England or Germany or Canada, Mexico, Cuba, Vietnam, South Korea, China, Trinidad, India, South Africa, and Ireland. We have people who have come from every one of those nations who are members in our church. We are of many different races in our congregation. We really are as we teach our children to sing red and yellow and brown and black and white. We have folks who are well-to-do, and we have many others who struggle to make ends meet. We have, we have folks, we have multiple people in our church who have PhDs, but we also have people who didn't finish high school. We have people in our church from the east and the west and from the south, and if we're feeling really benevolent, occasionally we'll let a Yankee come into our church. We have people who are blue-collar and white-collar workers. We have people who grew up on farms and people who grew up in the city. We have people who came from, from a a background just like this, but we also have many people in our church who grew up in Catholicism or denominationalism or or a religious indifference. We have some people in our church with very fiery temperaments. We have some other people in our church who are so laid back as to be almost comatose. And we have people with radically different levels of maturity and Bible knowledge. We have people in our church family who have been Christians for six weeks And we have people who have been Christians for over 60 years. Now let's be really honest tonight. When the call of the gospel brings together in a local church people of such diverse background, it's going to take a tremendous amount of love and understanding and patience and work to mold them into a family. And so we talk continually in our congregation about being a church family, that we are brothers and sisters in a family, but it takes an awful lot to mold people into a family of such diversity. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, whether you're talking here or where I worship, 
it means that we've got to try to understand each other a little bit. There's an amazing statement in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, where Ezekiel goes down and he sees the captives and he, he goes down to the river Kebar. And he sees the captives. These are his people, the people that he grew up with. He was from a, a, a priestly background. He cared about these people tremendously. And he looks at them and he grieves about what he sees. And he says about all of that, he says, I sat where they sat. I think it's one of the greatest statements in all the Bible. I sat where they sat. In other words, I tried to put myself in their place. I tried to see the world through their eyes. And I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we want the church of Christ, if we want a local body like this to be healthy and whole and harmonious, we have got to try to see through the eyes of each other a little bit. I talk to young people. We, I told you yesterday, we, we have so many young people in our congregation. We typically have about 100 college students with us at every service. And I, I talk to them and I say, look, you've got to try to see the world through the eyes of those who are older. You need to try to see the world through the eyes of those who are older than you. You need to think about what's it like for an older person to look around a, a workplace or a church where youth is prized and to feel like you've still got so much to offer and yet feel like sometimes you're kind of shunted off to the side be, because of your age. What would that be like? Or what's it like to grieve over many, many a grave and many a friend that you have lost? What's it like to have that kind of mileage on the odometer of your heart? But I would also say that if you're of my generation, We've got to try to see through the eyes of young people. And sometimes that's hard for us, but we need to do that. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I am fully persuaded tonight that we have among us in our churches, throughout the length and breadth of these United States, we've got some of the finest young people to be found. We've got young people that are morally and ethically sensitive, young people who are truly determined to do what is right, who are trying their best to remember their Creator in the days of their youth. We have wonderful young people among us. If you ever hear somebody say that we have lost a generation of young people, I would just say to you that is wrong. We have amazing young people. And we've got to try as well to try to see through, through their eyes. We need to try to see through the eyes of so many individuals. What's it like? What's it like to be a, to be a, a, a member of one of the minorities in our land? Or what's it like to be a person who is chronically ill? What would that be like? To wake up every day in your own personal Gethsemane and wonder, wonder if you're ever going to be extricated from that, that place in your life. What is it like for individuals in our fellowship who have to live with the pain of a scriptural divorce, a divorce they never wanted, but where a maid has done violence and treachery to them through their adultery? What would that be like? And beyond that, ladies and gentlemen, in dealing with everyone, we have such partial knowledge of people and their circumstances. We have so little knowledge of what paralyzes people with fear. We don't know about chemical imbalances or about their home life or why they struggle with temptation. We don't, we don't know about the baggage that they may be carrying from their past. And I'm just saying that this kind of understanding demands that we have a, a we attitude instead of a me attitude. An attitude where we believe that every single member of the body of Christ 
is important. And every member has a function to fill. And if you were not here this morning, let me encourage you to listen to that lesson where we talk about that there is a kingdom task for every kingdom citizen. And it's understanding that we are connected in a vital way to each other. Because I'll tell you, the only one who, the only one who loves Christians being separated from each other is our adversary, the devil. COVID did for him what he's been trying to do for centuries. And we've got to make sure as we navigate out of that, that we do not give him that ground. And so we've got to emphasize equality and not superiority. And then third and finally tonight, I think from 1 Corinthians 12, we must emphasize harmony and not hostility. I want you to look at the screen with me, if you will, and read a couple of verses with me. Listen to what Paul said. Just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body are many, and yet they are one body. So it is with Christ. The body is one. One body. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. No division. Same care. Ladies and gentlemen, you would have to work to miss the emphasis that Paul is putting in those verses. Because Paul is saying, look, God designed both the physical body and the spiritual body to love, harmony, and hate, discord. In fact, with a human body, when there is discord within a human body, we say that it is sick, that it has a disease, that there needs to be some kind of an intervention to take care of that illness. We've got to make that better. And the fact is that God Almighty, listen to me, God wants the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, to continue in Mount Pleasant, Texas. He wants your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your, the people you go to school with, the people you do life with. He wants them to see how Jesus lives and moves in your life. But nothing will destroy that more quickly than any kind of division within the body. It's why Paul would say in Ephesians 4, and beginning in verse 3, that we've got to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a part of that we can't do anything about. The unity of the Spirit is not mine to change. I can't alter that in any way. Paul defines that in Ephesians 4, in those seven ones. You know, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of those things. I can't change that at all. But what I can do something about is the bond, the glue, the cement of peace. I can do something about that. The dying request... The dying request of the dying Lord was, Father, I'm not praying for these alone, but for all of those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. And he says, God, here's what I'm praying. On the night before I die, when my mind is focused on what matters, Jesus says, God, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that they may all be one. As you are Father in me and I in you, that they will be one in us, because in that the world will believe that you sent me. How important that is, ladies and gentlemen. Because harmony among the holy is a beautiful thing. The psalmist said it. Psalm 133 and verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It is refreshing and invigorating and encouraging. Let's be really honest tonight before we stop. Our adversary, the devil, will forever be doing whatever he can to keep us from accomplishing our mission as the people of God. How will he do that? Well, maybe he'll try to do that through the infiltration of false teaching. But the problem is you have too many people in this church family who know the book of God too well 
to ever let that happen. So maybe the devil will do that through governmental antagonism. Maybe the day will come when finally somebody at the courthouse gets an injunction to close us down on the basis of religious, religious non-freedom. Maybe someday, but I'll tell you what, not today. That's not where we are right now. But if somehow, some way, at some time, our adversary, the devil, can get members of the body to somehow be in conflict with each other, to begin that process, as Paul described it, abiding and devouring each other, then it won't be long until the body is consumed one of another. I've said this a thousand times at home at Temple Terrace. I must always remember that I am not the only one here. And neither are you. Sometimes the shepherds in our church family at home, they make decisions just exactly the way I believe they should be made, but sometimes they don't. But what I have to remember is, I'm not the only one there. And they can't make a decision just for me. They have to think about the health, the harmony, the growth, the peace, the place of the entire body of Christ. Some time ago, I was doing some study along this line, and in one of the things that I was reading, the author said, you know, maybe the tenth beatitude should have been, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. And I've always remembered that and thought about that and tried to incorporate that. It's so important, ladies and gentlemen, that we do. It's why we have the commands that we do, isn't it? Where Paul would say, look, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, I mean, it it may be that there's a circumstance where the other individual simply will not allow this to occur. But as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Or he says, let us therefore pursue a hunting term. You've got to hunt down the things that make for peace and things whereby we can edify one another. If I may go back just one more time to what we talked about this morning in the morning session. We've all got to find our niche, our role, our place in the body of Christ and serve in that capacity to the best of our ability. There's a great statement in the book of Judges, chapter 7, when it simply says, every man stood in his place. I've always loved that. Every man stood in his place. If you want to see the opposite of that, we've, <clears throat> one of the things I like to do with our little kids at Temple Terrace, we, we've got so many little kids. And... Uh, some of them are about the size of some of these little kids over here. They're about where they can just about begin to play soccer. And I love going and seeing these little four- and five-year-old kids play soccer because it's, it is not organized chaos. It is disorganized chaos, right? I mean, there is no order to it at all. There's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes they'll just stay in a little huddle. Sometimes they'll move as a huddle. Sometimes they'll wander off everywhere. Sometimes they're looking and waving at everybody. But they, it's just disorganized chaos. And it's cute when you're dealing with four- and five-year-old kids. But it's a disaster when it happens in the body of Christ. And so every man stood in his place. Every individual found their role, their place, their niche, their work. And that's what they did. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to make sure that we assiduously avoid anything, anything that would harm the harmony in the body of Christ. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians. Look at it carefully. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why, if we could just embrace that, and live that, what a tremendous difference it would make, ladies and gentlemen, in the kingdom of our God. And so, dependence, equality, and harmony. Three elements that I think just leap off the page in 1 Corinthians 12. Can I just have just one more minute of your time, and then we'll be finished tonight. I've got to tell you that I think this is a great time to be the body of Christ. I hear Christians sometimes bemoan being the body of Christ right now and how difficult that is, but I think this is a great time to be the body of Christ. This is a great time to be able to hold out hope, to have the answers that meet the deepest needs in people's lives. And that's our mission, ladies and gentlemen. Let's not lose sight of that. That's our mission, to make a difference in our communities. There are far too many churches that are stuck in neutral while the world is literally going to hell. There are far too many churches who spend their time trying to appease a few forever dissatisfied folks, and yet we must not be sidetracked from our mission to reach the lost and the searching, the confused and the hurting. There are far too many individuals who can argue the most infinitesimally small piece of minutia, and yet they have not spoken to anybody about the Lord in days or weeks or months or even years. And I'm just saying to you tonight that we are called to something better than that. How could we ever explain that to the Lord? How would we ever be able to explain to the Lord that there were real people with real hurts and real needs that needed a real touch from a real God? And we had the ability and the opportunity and the resources to reach out and to make a difference in their lives and yet decided not to do that. One of the things I do know about this congregation is that you do a beautiful job with this. And in many ways, you've, you've served this community well for so many years now. But ladies and gentlemen, we must never be distracted, no matter how long we've been here, from our mission. God needs healthy churches. Which means that He needs healthy Christians. Because what did we say yesterday morning? A church is as her members are. Again, you want, a, you want a friendly church, you've got to have friendly members. It, doesn't, it has nothing to do with size. It could be 50 or 500, it doesn't matter. And if you want a church to be healthy and strong, then you've got to have healthy and strong members. And I tell you, much of that begins by remembering who we are. I was flipping channels the other day and came across the that little classic animated movie, The Lion King. And I thought about the fact, you know, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And I love that scene in The Lion King where the old, the old <clears throat> lion is, is speaking to his young, his young son. And he says, remember who you are. You are the child of a king. And so are we, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus was the master teacher, the great physician, 
the loving Savior, the Good Shepherd. And our job is to bring His message of healing and salvation to as many as possible. Thank you for listening so well tonight. If you have your Bible, one other verse. I want you to look at a verse that we overlooked in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll just finish with it tonight. We didn't read verse 13, and so let's read it together. Verse 13 says that we, by one Spirit, were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Every person in this room who is a child of God, we all began the same way. We all began in the waters of baptism. And if you've never done that, I would just say to you, there is, there's no other entry, there's no other way to be a part of the body of Christ. It begins right there. And so tonight, if you need to be buried in baptism so that you can rise to walk in newness of life, we'd love to help you with that. And if you've been a part of the body of Christ, but for whatever reason, you have, you have just kind of extricated yourself and taken yourself away from that, why don't tonight you come home? You can have that tonight before you leave this building. And so if there's a response to God you need to make tonight in a public way, and we can help you, we hope you'll let us. Let's stand and let's sing.